Hi everybody, it's great to see you. Uh, it's great to actually see you. I don't know how long it'll be before I see you again. We'll see how it works out. We'll see. Um, I'm actually in the middle of a real challenge. I'm really excited in a strange way about what we might be able to do over this next period of time. On the one hand, trying to work out how to respond in these kind of situations is incredibly difficult. How to, how to act wisely. And I think one of the ways that we act wisely, and it seems as though part of, part of the thrust of the New Testament is that we actively support and encourage those who are leading us from a society point of view. We're called to pray for our leaders. We're called to support our leaders. And I think one of the ways that we do that is when our leaders are calling us to do certain things we, which are not wrong things to do, then we actively, as believers, encourage that. What we are going to face over the next period of time is the real potential for social isolation. And therefore, I want for us to be countercultural in our response towards that. Finding all sorts of creative ways for us to engage with people who are perhaps in danger of being socially isolated. One of the things about church is that we come along of a week each weekend and, and there's a relatively small number of people who are leading uh, from the front. When we enter into this kind of world, it is, it is impossible for that small number of people to be looking everywhere. This is where the church really plays its part, reveals its true, dynamic, beautiful colors to the world around. And we behave in a way which is dramatically, encouragingly different, and we care in ways which are extraordinary. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what the next few weeks are going to bring. But that's my prayer, that, that we are that, that we are different in great ways. We're coming right to the end of Judges. We'd actually expected this to be the second to the last, and next week to be the last. I'm really excited about next week. I want to encourage you, if you are able to in any way, if it's maybe if you know somebody and you're, you're not a vulnerable person and you can meet with somebody else and you can, you can view the live stream together, I, I want us to go beyond just, um, just presenting. I think one of the things that those kind of environments give us is the opportunity for for questions to be asked as we're going along so that it becomes almost a, us working through a Bible study together. So what we're going to try next week is for me, Ash and Jude to be together uh, and for Jude through a series of questions to kind of take us on what we expected to do next week, which is a rounding up of the whole of the book of Judges. What, what's it been about in its totality? What are the key things that we can draw out? And where does it take us? That is, that is so pertinent to the world that we live in today. And so I would love if we can go even further 
and for that to have questions being interjected from outside of that group of three, three people as part of that journey of, of us together discovering the final conclusion of the book of Judges. So that's our plan. We will do our very, very best to communicate through social media, all of the various, uh, through email, through text. Please, please leave a number, as Judas already mentioned, so that we can connect with you if you don't connect through those kind of means, email, Facebook, all the, the other social media platforms. You, you know how I rail against those so often. I am eating huge humble pie now and saying, let, let's really use them. And in fact, let's redeem them. That, that's our goal over the next period of time. Let's, let's redeem these platforms to be great environments for us to love each other. I'm going to pray quickly before we turn to this passage. Father, as we turn to this particular reading, we recognize that we are going to be dealing with some extraordinarily difficult themes, ideas, and even words that are contained in the Bible. And so I pray that you would help me to be sensitive, but Christ-honoring, so that we might see the beauty of Jesus in harrowing words. In his name we pray, amen. We're going to be working through uh, Judges chapter 19. It was due to be Ash, and he's, um, he's, he's self, he spoke to me on Thursday or Friday, and he was coughing all over the place. You've had it, mate, you're done. And then I saw the reading and thought, oh, right, okay, <laughs> I've got this one. Okay, we'll see how we go on. It's harrowing, and therefore I'm really pleased that we're going to kind of work it through as part of the, the, the talk, rather than read it with, with all of the kids in. But let's, let's just think for a minute. It was early 1980s, <coughs> Robert Hughes um, presented a TV series called The Shock of the New. Some of you might know about it. The Shock of the New it was one of the a groundbreaking TV series. Uh, there was a book produced as well. The Shock of the New was a journey of the uh, modern art movement. Fascinating. One of the things that becomes very clear with the modern art movement is something that it was doing which art previously had not really been doing in quite the way that it, it has become. And that is to confront, to confront with a, a reality and another way of looking at something, to challenge, to, to look into the the, the whites of the eyes of society and say, look at this. You are confronted with this. I, I really got that. I'm sure I've mentioned it uh, on a number of occasions. I really got that when I was going around the Tate in Liverpool. And I, I was curious to uh, a car door that was fixed to the wall. And I went up and uh, looked at this piece of work and the, the window came down. And in the view beyond the window was a horrific scene of racial abuse in the 1940s America. I was reeling, literally reeling, 
because I suddenly realized what this piece of art was doing, is it was placing me in a car observing that, that scene. It was genius. It was putting me in that place and saying, I am part of society which allows this kind of thing to happen. Edward Kleinhardt's, I think it was, uh, it was called Saudi, I think, because that was the number plate of one of the cars involved in the particular incident. It confronted. That is Judges chapter 19. It is a massively confronting chapter. That's where it is. That's what it's to do. It actually, chronologically, <clears throat> we've been working through the book of Judges and the, the, the constructor of the book of Judges works through chronologically with the various judges, one after the, after the other after the other. We actually find that this particular incident was in the early part uh, of the, the people in, in the land. It, wasn't, it isn't chronologically at the end, although it is at the end of the book. And that's really important because what the writer is doing is he's, he's wanting to say, with all of this that's gone on, I want to confront you with this theme, this story at the end. I want you to be shocked by it, even though it happened uh, much earlier on. So the first thing that we see in Judges chapter 19 is the, a Levite and his concubine who are in a relational crisis. Judges chapter 9, verse 1 to 31. In those days, Israel had no king. That is a massively important theme. It's a, it's, it's a huge theme that we're going to be looking at next week. They had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. She was unfaithful to him but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there three, four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into, his, into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. That's the setting of the scene. We've got this Levite. Now, we need to remind ourselves, or maybe acquaint ourselves for the first time, of the significance of the fact that he was a Levite. If we go back to um, God's people coming out of Egypt, we realize that there were 12 families, well, there were 12 brothers, or, and those family, family trees that followed after them, the, the clans of Judah, the families of Judah, all had significant roles, but the Levites had the most significant role because the Levites were selected to be the priests. The Levites were the ones who were there with the role of sitting between God, Yahweh, and God's people. That was the role of the Levites. They were there to be, if you like, the spokes, spokesman for God, speaking to the community, God's words, and they were there to be the communicator to God on behalf of the people. So they spoke to God 
on behalf of the people. It's, they had this functional role to sit between. And so we see that the Levites were there with this role, and this Levite is in a relational crisis. His concubine has abandoned him. But I think what the narrator is trying to do is he's setting a scene which says, I've already shown you through all of the previous chapters, even though I'm putting this at the end, I've already shown you that Israel is in complete relational crisis. They're in a relational crisis with God. And therefore, don't be surprised that you see a Levite who is also in a relational crisis. Because what we're seeing is the, the falling apart, the fraying of the society that God had intended His people to be, and yet they are unable to deliver. It takes us all the way back to God's portrayal of the first crisis, where Adam and Eve and God end up in a relation, relational crisis. There is a breaking of the relationship be, between the beautiful people that God identifies as carrying His image and the ones who are then supposed to be in relationship with each other. Adam and Eve end up in relational crisis. And therefore, they end up in relational crisis with God. It's a repeat again. It's happening again. It's the Levite is there, if you like, as a, a, a token of what is going on around them. That is the backdrop for the relational crisis. And so what we find is that the, the Levite goes up to back to Bethlehem in Judah to go to the home of this concubine and he meets with the father who welcomes him in gladly. We see that he welcomes him in. And night after night they eat and they drink and they relax together and he says that he's going to leave and then the father says, no, stay a bit longer, stay a bit longer. And he stays again overnight and they, they, they eat and they drink together. And I don't know what that, the significance of that is. I, I suspect it's possibly trying to make him stay in that place. I don't know. But whatever we have, we have this, this picture of kind of relationship forming. But it, again, it's, it's got this kind of twist to it. It's got this, this way in which it looks like the father is, is manipulating the Levite as well in some way. There's something else going on. And he's about to leave and they no, we've, you've eaten too much, you've drunk too much, stay another night. So he stays another night. And then finally, after five days, he says, right, that's it, I really am. We are really going. And so we jump through now to verse 9. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early morning, early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus. That is Jerusalem. With his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, 
We won't go into any city. Those people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. So here we've got this situation where they've finally left. They've, they've eaten and drunk for five days and he's put his foot down and he says, we're off, we're going. And they're leaving. And then they come to this place. Fantastically significant. Jerusalem. A place which becomes massively important, as you know. It's the place where Jesus uh, centers himself in his final days. It's the place where temple worship is instigated. All of that kind of stuff. They, go to, they come to uh, this place which they have not yet taken. Israel has not yet taken it. It's actually ta- owned by the Jebusites, this city at this point. And he says, we're not going to stay there. Because that is a bad place. It's got pagans in that place. His master replied, no, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. All the bad things go on over there. It's us holy Israelites that are the safe ones. We'll go on to Gibeah. It's two things that I think are really important for us to draw out there. Firstly is, note that they hadn't cleared the land and Jerusalem is not the city of God, the safe place. It's not. It's not a place where they think they can be safe. But secondly, I think it reveals our hearts. Our social construction so often works like this Levite. All those over there, they're the bad ones. They're the ones that we keep ourselves away from. We are the righteous ones. We are the good ones. We are the the safe nation or the safe people or the safe church or the safe neighborhood. It's those out there that we don't go near. The Levite is revealing in those words just just the flavor of the problem of our human hearts. Do you see the dramatic impact of Jesus when he breaks in and he says, I want you to have relationships towards those that are out there like they are your friends. I don't want you I want you to love your enemy, Jesus says. Why? Why does Jesus say I want you to love your enemy? Because he's recognizing that this trait which the Levite expressed is at the heart of all of our condition. We have a tendency to say the bad ones are the ones out there over there. And we are disinclined to recognize the issues in ourselves and therefore reach out because we are all the same. That is dramatically important for us as we move forward over these next weeks. COVID-19 is not going to last forever. Well, it might last forever actually, but the, the thing that we're going on through the next few weeks, it's not going to last forever. 
Things will return to normal, but we do not know what's going to happen over this next period of time. What we must not be is like the Levite. The bad ones are those out there. How that works out, how we become lovers of those over there, in reality over this next period of time, I pray that God's Holy Spirit will work in us so that we learn and understand how to do that really well. Because we are reversing the tendency of the heart of the Levite. Not living the heart of the Levite. Here we have a Levite who is fearing those pagans. And so they do just what the Levite says. They decide that they will carry on and get to Gibeah. They go to a safe place. But the safe place where they arrive is actually a place of horror. They arrive in Gibeah, and there is no Holiday Inn, there is no Travel Lodge Premier Inn. That's not the culture of the day. The culture of the day, generally speaking, is small, small environments like that. There are maybe, there is an inn. We know that Jesus' family, there was an inn in Bethlehem, but this was so far back. That, those kind of things we understand weren't developed. People cared for travelers as they traveled. They invited them into their homes just because they were travelers. They took care of each other. That was the society that, we, uh, that, that was constructed at that time. It's just the way it was. Even more so when they who are Israelites arrive in Gibeah, which is an Israelite town. Where do they find themselves? Nobody invites them in for safe harbor overnight. Nobody invites them in. They end up in the town square. There is an old man who comes to them who's not a Gibeonite. He's an outsider. And the outsider says to them, Come into my house overnight. Come to my place. He actually makes this really interesting point. He says, don't spend the night in the square. The way the narrator constructs this narrative, it's genius. He just drops that little phrase in from the, the old man. Don't spend the night in the square. Don't do that. And so we skip forward to verse 22. Because all seems to be going well. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. While this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. 
But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to them. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. That is shocking, isn't it? As that unfolds, as you read that, I guess some of us are thinking, I don't like hearing things like this. I particularly don't like the fact that this is in the Bible. Because the Bible is about nice things. The Bible is about good things. The Bible is designed to take us to a good place. And this is horrific. Nothing short of horrific. It is dreadful. And yet what I would say is this. The message of God to this world cannot engage truthfully and reliably unless it deals with the crisis of the world as it truly exists. Not as we want it to exist. Because the reality that what we read in Judges chapter 19 happened back then, and in the world that we live today, happens still. Do not think that this is the kind of thing that only goes on in India, as we have read that it does. Because this goes on in our country. With gang culture as it is, these kind of things do happen. And the problem is we are so just normalized. We are normalized to the horror of the world that we live in. And the Bible, if it is going to engage with us truly, deeply, and richly, it needs to engage in the desperate condition of the human heart. And that's what it does. But as we read that, we were shocked. Do you remember when I said that right at the beginning that the shock of the new, the, the kind of journey of modern art is to confront us with a reality that we pretend isn't there. That is what this is doing here. It's shocking us with a reality. But it goes way, way, way beyond that. If we think that this is just an opportunity to be shocked by something, we lose the, the journey of God's people. If you were aware of the journey of God's people up to this point, 
you will be aware of Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? God sent messengers into that city to go and view that city. And they end up in the home of somebody who says, come into my house and I will keep you safe overnight. They, he says, I need to check, I should have checked that. It effectively, he says, don't sleep in the town square. He says, sleep in my house. What happens? Banging on the door, send those men out so that we can have sex with them overnight. Exactly the same storyline. Only in Sodom and Gomorrah, there is a, a way in which God intervenes and completely destroys the intention of those evil and wicked men. And what we have here is God doesn't intervene in that way and this poor woman is abused in the most horrific of ways. But what is it saying? If we were Israel at this point, we would be saying something along the lines of Sodom and Gomorrah is in Israel. This is new Sodom. This should not happen here. What happened out there which caused the destruction of those cities is happening here? Really? How? How can it possibly be happening here? <laughs> because of the problem of the human heart. That's the issue. And that's the shock for Israel. That's the point. We need to be shocked sometimes into the desperate condition of the human heart. As it unfolds, that is precisely what happens. Look at the way the Levite behaves. He sends her out. He opens the door with this narrator giving this incredibly moving moment where she has her hand on the threshold. He opens the door to leave himself. He sees her on the floor and he says, get up, let's go. What is going on? What is this Levite about? How is he behaving compared to how he should be behaving? It seems as though he takes her onto his donkey and they go. Verse 29, when he reached home, he took out a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been done, nor since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Body parts and 12 pieces are sent throughout Israel. This is a disaster. This is a crisis. This is horror. It seems as though God's people at this point realize the condition that they are in 
But bear in mind that this happened early on and everything else that carries on means that they said it, but they didn't mean it. Oh, we're shocked by it. But we're not prepared to do what is necessary to resolve the issue of where we are. But the narrator puts it at the end to say, do you see what happens? When we are in relational crisis with each other and relational crisis with God, we end up with a broken society which creates all sorts of other relational crises. And we are supposed to be witnesses to the God who we love. Or we claim we love. What does this say to us? It says quite simply this. I think it's summed up in two points. Firstly, it says this. We need to understand the desperate condition of the human heart. That's what this text calls us to do. That's what the journey of Judges calls us to do. We need to understand the desperate condition of the human heart. Do you remember what it said right at the beginning? In those days, Israel had no king. There was no kind of sense of real authoritative rule. What happens when there is no authoritative rule is the true hearts come out. And Jesus said the same. He said, you need to understand where this kind of stuff comes from. It doesn't come from out there. It doesn't come, do you see the contrast? They go to Jabus and they say, oh, we're not going in for those, to those nasty pagans because bad things happen in there and they come to the place where they should be safe and bad things happen. Why? Because the human heart is the human heart. And Jesus says in Matthew, Mark chapter 7, verse 21, he says this, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. It's from inside. It's in our hearts. That's where the problem emanates from. It's only grace that suppresses our intentions. It's from inside of us. This, this whole journey is to, to confront us with the reality of ourselves. And we cry out and we say, we need saving. We need saving. Because actually all of those over there are not the problem alone. It's the problem inside here. It's the problem of our hearts. And that's why Jesus is great news. <laughs> because he came not to guide us into a slightly better way of living. He came to save us from who we are. And then finally, what do we need? realize we need? We need a better priest. Because this Levite is not the kind of priest that we need. One who backs away and throws out the concubine rather than standing in the way and protecting. Oh, he's, he's, yes, he's, he's offended that she's abandoned him and gone back to her father. He goes and makes the play and brings her back. 
But when the rubber hits the road, he's back there and she's out there. And is heartless in his response. He doesn't stand in the way. He sends her out to be crushed. What do we need? We need a priest who does completely the opposite. We need a priest who goes out there to be crushed so that we might be saved. And that is what we have in Jesus. One who is that great priest. All of this journey is telling us what? We need a better priest. We need a king. We need somebody who isn't going to lord it over us. We need somebody who's going to love us and is going to suffer in our place and is going to stand when we fall. That is how we can understand the horrors of Judges and Judges chapter 19 in particular. And we can end, or we would normally end by triumphantly singing the praise of God, but we won't tonight. We will end by giving thanks because the priest that we need is the priest that we have. Let's pray. Father, we are so aware of our desperate need for you. We thank you that you are the one who goes out to be crushed so that we might live. We thank you that you are the one who sacrifices himself so that we might not die. We thank you that you are the one who this book, in all of its horror, anticipates by saying there is something better coming. We pray that as we spend this next period of time on shore, we pray that your hand would be upon us. We pray that you would guide us and keep us and prepare us. We thank you for each other. And we pray that our hearts might be mindful towards each other. In Jesus' name, amen.